Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and has ever wondered about them. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and its sequels, and the Top Secret Diary of Celie Valentine series. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related question. And in this episode, we're exploring why books? What is the value of teaching English? And what makes a reader? What are the kinds of books that work well with students and why? So we came up with the idea for this episode because, of course, like everyone else, we're following what's going to happen with schools. When are they going to open? How are they going to open? How much schooling will kids miss? You and I both have kids in college, and it's been quite a roller coaster in terms of will they be in person, will they be online. At the same time, there's a long-standing debate about the value of humanities. Lots of people are questioning what's the point of studying all this literature, particularly after you leave high school. But even before that, what's the point of studying fiction? I think we're seeing a lot more nonfiction coming into K-12 through curricula than we ever have before. So let's make our case. Why? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why exactly. books? <laughs> Why books? And we also wondered, how is the teaching and learning of English going in this very crazy time? Right, with all these particular constraints. So luckily, Sarah Beasley was willing to talk to us. Sarah has been teaching English for about 34 years. In a certain sense, she was destined to be an English teacher because she comes from a long line of teachers on both sides of her family. Her students have ranged in age from sixth graders to seniors in college, and she is proud to be the mother of a book-loving 12-year-old son. I know Sarah because I was very, very, very lucky to teach briefly at the school where she has been teaching for a number of years. I was filling in as a leave replacement. I was teaching sixth grade English and high school creative writing, and Sarah sat two desks away, and we became friends. Sarah was very generous. She let me come and observe her in the classroom so I could learn something about how to do what it was I was supposed to be doing. She is a master teacher. Long lines of students would come into the teacher's lounge without appointments just to talk to her about what they were studying, about problems in their lives. She's a really, really special and wonderful teacher. So I was thrilled when she said that she would talk to us about this incredibly important topic. So we started by asking Sarah how she decides which books her classes should read and what goes into that decision-making. And here's what she said. The thing that I used to push against when I was first learning to teach was the idea that some books would be better experiences for kids than others. I used to think, well, if I'm doing my job well enough, can't I really theoretically teach anything well? And I think Hmm. the answer is no. Some (laughs) (laughs) Some books really don't translate to the classroom as well. And I'm hoping you're not going to ask me to give you an example of that. Because <laughs> no, of course, of course I'm going to ask you. <laughs> That's we have, be hard. We need to, everyone who's listening to this wants to know what's been really hard to teach. Um, honestly, I did not do a great job with Mall Flanders by Daniel Mitchell. <laughs> <laughs> and that was an example of a text that I I knew chose. you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah. I chose that text because it fit well with my theme for the course, which was how women 
are shaped by the economic discrimination against them and their societies. And I had put together this very ambitious sort of survey of examples of female characters in literature who were oppressed by their times. And Ma Flanders, man, I couldn't get it to come alive for them. These were college students, by the way, I should say. That still sticks on in my mind. (laughs) A spectacular (laughs) failure of choice on my part. What are some of your favorite books to teach? The Talented Mr. Ripley is a Mm. wonderful book to teach. I have discovered. Uh, I think I've taught it seven or eight times. And the reason that it works so well is it's a compelling narrative, of course, and the students are very caught up in the suspense. It offers them the experience of identifying with and caring about a protagonist who's actually probably amoral, arguably immoral, but it's actually Highsmith's writing style that we slow down and really look at. How much she's able to do implicitly, super subtle uses of language, what she doesn't tell you, how she uses dialogue to sound particular themes for the characterization, how she uses objects, allusions. There's such richness to her craft as a writer. And I find that every year students respond with such warmth to spending time with that material. And then they're hooked. They're hooked on the idea of this protagonist. They're hooked on this style that is so tip of the iceberg in so many ways because nothing is really over-explained. Mm-hmm. The reader's really invited into the protagonist's way of thinking, and we share that way of thinking with them. Yeah. Another example, I think this maybe sounds really strange, but Oedipus Rex, <laughs> Sophocles. Mm, really? Yes. Huh. Oedipus Rex is such bang for your buck as a teacher. <laughs> it, oh All my right, there's gosh. the pull quote. <laughs> there's so much to talk about. The language, these massively huge ideas. Look how relevant Oedipus Rex is to right now. Tyranny and a plague. Yeah. Oh, wow. Every time I've taught Oedipus Rex, and I think I must have taught it now many, many times in, in the past, say, 20 years, Every time I've taught it, it has hit. Mm -hmm. The last text I would also lift up as a particularly favorite book to teach is Beloved because it is so hard and because I know that students need a lot of practice and help. But what I love about Beloved is they're completely, most of them, completely lost in the beginning. And we just embrace that. Lost in the sense of the the magical realism, knowing what's real, what's not real, or what do you mean by lost? Lost even just from the first paragraph of language. What am I reading? Literally, I don't even know what I'm supposed to think about what I just read about the house, 124 Bluestone Lane, that Morrison opens the novel describing. And so watching students wrestle, be confused. Morrison for me is someone that makes most of my students have to work harder than they're used to and defer and delay their feelings of, oh, I've got this. I get it. I've got it all. And she dislocates them. I say she rewires their brains for them. She teaches them how to think differently, how to feel differently, how to see patterns differently. So I love teaching Beloved. What do you hope that students get out of an English curriculum? That's such a wonderful question. And I think if I as a teacher can't answer that, I am really (laughs) not doing my job. 
<laughs> I think it's always been for me about how can the English curriculum give the students that I teach exposure to different perspectives, different points of view, different life stories. But then having given them those, and you might've heard this familiar formulation of mirrors and windows, you know, sometimes literature is letting you look and see yourself. And sometimes literature is giving you a window to look through at other experiences. There's more to it than that. And oftentimes both are happening at the same time. But I guess that others' experiences can be viewed with both imagination and empathy, with identification and a sense of revelation, like, oh, I've never seen that or thought that before. That's what I want the literature itself to give the students. But the curriculum is more than just the books. The curriculum is also what we do with the books, how we respond to them in discussion, how we respond to them in writing, how we respond to them, even in those private moments where each of us is reading alone and just having thoughts. Mm -hmm. I have so many other hopes for the curriculum. I mean, I want the students also to gain language, gain language that they've not had access to before. We'll teach Macbeth and we'll have the students choose a single word, a noun, something that's pretty concrete in the text and have them really think deeply about that word and how it works. And just empowering them to see that not only is their craft at work with a novelist or a playwright choosing a particular work and then maybe repeating it or maybe playing with it in some way or interrogating it, but they can see that there's a whole set of ideas attached to that word. And it's not just one thing. So in the end, the student develops an appreciation for complexity. And the last thing is related to that empathy piece, which is that students realize that they are connected to other people, that they're not standing in judgment of them, but they're really sitting alongside them and having the chance to maybe turn their heads in the same direction as those characters so that they kind of see what that character sees. Um, those are the hopes. I'm really struck by what you said about complexity, kids learning that there are multiple perspectives, multiple truths. We live in such a binary, polarized yeah. time. That feels more essential than ever. Yeah. Yeah. And being patient, if you don't think you have the answer, maybe there isn't just an answer. Maybe there are multiple answers or contingent answers. A lot of times students, especially in eighth, ninth, and 10th grade, they're pretty keen to know the answer. So part of what I'm also seeing is I'm trying to inculcate a sense of patience with process and knowing that ambiguity is actually an answer. <laughs> right. That's such an important life lesson now. Being comfortable with ambiguity or uncertainty is so important. You were talking, too, about literature being a lens for understanding the experience of others. I'm curious, you're a white woman, and you've taught courses about African literature and African-American literature for many years. What are the challenges in teaching books that are written by and about people whose cultures and races are different from your own? And what do you do to address those challenges? In taking on you know, these courses, and these have been deliberate choices for me, because these are the areas for me as a learner that are the most in need of attention. And so I've been able to, as a teacher, I've been able to position myself as a fellow learner with my students. I've only been doing this for about the past seven years of my career have I been really exclusively seeking to teach 
outside of what I would have called my expertise, it's shown me, well, it's, it's sort of a simultaneous, maybe a contradictory understanding. On the one hand, let's take African literature, for example. Uh, Yobami Adebayo is a contemporary Nigerian writer whose novel Stay With Me, I've taught now three times. And every single time my students who are not African, for the most part, a couple of them have African heritage, but not all of them, none of them is from Africa immediately. My students have been really astonished at how much they recognize, how much in spite of a cultural difference, how much feels truly personal to them and recognizable as such. So there's a spiritual alignment that you then discover. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is just to understand that being tremendously ignorant of the work and the writing of a lot of really amazing practitioners is not okay. And these courses have energized me and I've really committed to reading much more widely and much more deeply in exactly those places where I feel the least familiarity. And what I gain from it I'm never going to gain certainty or familiarity or authority, but what I am going to gain is experience. Mm -hmm. And I feel like what I'm doing then with my students in these classes is we're exploring, but we're also acknowledging that the curriculum historically in the United States, at least in most schools that I'm aware of, has been pretty limited. Yeah, And it's shocking when you realize there's so much great work that hasn't yet quite made it into the usual rotations. And I'm really thinking of high schools. I think colleges are probably in a better place with this. But in high school, canonically, there's so much room for adding new voices and more global perspectives and specifically getting away from really the heavy British legacy. Mm -hmm. And of course, the irony is that in a lot of African writing, especially West African writing, well, East African too, there, and certainly South Africa, there's, you've still got to disentangle the colonial, the colonizer. Unless you're reading Ethiopian books. Right. <laughs> That's the only exception. Yeah. <laughs> and there's some wonderful new Ethiopian writers. Do you guys know Maza Mengiste? No. no. The Shadow King is her second novel, which is about the Italian attempt to invade Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. And it's a super novel. Uh, feminist about these core of women who go into the hills and help defeat the Italians. It's just a wonderful book, hugely researched and just a super gripping narrative. And I'm dying to teach it in my African lit class. It's about 400 pages. And for my purposes as a high school teacher, I tend to know that students, with one exception, students often <laughs> will... <laughs> Balk if the novel's super, super <laughs> long. I did manage to figure out how to teach crime and punishment. Sorry, I have to ask, how did you figure out how to make that one in particular appealing? Making them read it really fast and telling them that it's a page turner. And we read it after The Talented Mr. Ripley. Mm. And so what I tell them is that Highsmith said often that crime and punishment was, and Dostoevsky in particular, is one of her biggest literary influences. So then they read Crime and Punishment looking for how it helped her with Ripley. That just is like a literary treasure hunt for them. Mm -hmm. Yes. They can then get invested in that project. What does it look like when a reluctant reader becomes a book lover? I'm guessing you've seen that more than once. So reluctant readers are my favorite students to teach because 
I hear them say things like, well, I really hate reading or it hurts. Sometimes I'll just say that Mm -hmm. it hurts. My (laughs) eyes hurt. My brain hurts. (laughs) And I think what has to happen, those students, not always, but often the way to get them to become lovers of reading is I have them do a lot more writing. I have them think about what do they have to say. And then it's a process of unleashing the creative person inside the reluctant reader. And before you know it, that person is producing work, is writing. And then it's not such a big leap for that person then to fall in love with other people's writing. But I think what's necessary is she has to first fall in love with her own writing. Mm. Fascinating. I've never thought about writing as the way in to reading. No. It's usually the other way around. Right. Let's talk about the COVID era. Let's talk about what we're going through right now. What are the questions that we should be asking about education and the teaching of English in particular now? English, for me, has the potential to help students develop skills and understandings and, of course, knowledge that will help them become the embodiment of justice and fairness and humanity in a future that right now mm, looks really uncertain. Mm -hmm. I do believe so fully that the processes that I've tried to talk about a little bit, that development of another person's life is now intelligible to me. And once that person's life has become intelligible to me, don't I have a responsibility? Don't I have caring? Don't I have some stake in that person's well-being? Even if that person's imaginary and doesn't exist, there's going to be a person I'm going to encounter in my life who's going to remind me of that person. And I'm going to have a little bit more access. I think in this era of widening disparities and inequities, our best hope is to get us all standing shoulder to shoulder and looking in the same direction and not necessarily looking at the same things, but maybe looking in the same way. Mm -hmm. I really think a lot about sight and seeing. You may have strong feelings about this poet. Some people do. Theodore Retka? Retka. There. I always don't trust my pronunciation. There was a poem that he published. I came across it this spring when I was doing some reading and I've been doing a lot of writing in my journal. And I wrote down this line, in a dark time, the eye begins to see. Mm. So just kind of playing with that notion that you can actually see better, right? Mm -hmm. You can see differently. You can see more. It is, right? Yeah. So I've often thought as a teacher that if I can get students to kind of think about the connection between what they see and how they see and their other eye, which is the personal pronoun eye, right? That poem goes on to acknowledge that the eye is not necessarily set or stable. It's evolving, the eye, the personal pronoun eye. And I'm really interested in helping those students I come across in the literature that we share, that they can become convinced that they have agency, that they have efficacy, that they have power through their acts of interpretation. I'm just trying to give them opportunities to grow those faculties of sight and insight, ultimately into a sense of confidence that can become agency, that can become, I can do something. Mm. I don't want to 
have any part in shaping students who are going to sit back or retreat or consider themselves unaffected by or removed from what the rest of us are dealing with. I really want people who move toward community and communion. There you go. There's the value of teaching English, right? Yes. To see and then having seen to do right there. Amazing. Shall I read the poem that she referenced? Oh, yes, yes. Yes. Of course you went and looked it up. (laughs) Yes, thank you. (laughs) Um, Well, as I've said before, I know so little about poetry. So when someone recommends it, I have to go and find it. But anyway, it's called In a Dark Time by Theodore Retke. I'm just going to read the first and last stanzas because it's a little long. Okay. Oh, and if people want to find it, his last name is R-O-E-T-H-K-E. And then you can read the whole thing. Yes. In a dark time, the eye begins to see. I meet my shadow in the deepening shade. I hear my echo in the echoing wood, a lord of nature weeping to a tree. I live between the heron and the wren, beasts of the hill and serpents of the den. Dark, dark my light, and darker my desire. My soul, like some heat-maddened summer fly, keeps buzzing at the sill. Which I is I? A fallen man, I climb out of my fear. The mind enters itself, and God the mind. And one is one, free in the tearing wind. Wow. Which I is I. I love the notion of buzzing at the sill when we don't feel like we know ourselves. Mm, That lack of centeredness, that buzzing at the sill, trying to look, trying to see. God, that's great. Yeah. And in the last line, when he says, and one is one, the first one is not capitalized and the second one is capitalized, Mm -hmm. which I kind of like the individual one becoming part of something bigger. Yeah. Yeah. Such a gift, that poem. Back to more earthly matters, we asked Sarah to tell us about the upsides and downsides to teaching and learning during a pandemic. There are many, many obvious downsides that we've all been reading about or even experiencing if you have children. I just have to interrupt to say that my cat has jumped onto my desk and is nosing the microphone and I can't get her to stop. (laughs) So, wait, hang on. Ember? Um, Sorry. And now we return to our podcast. Um, So we won't go into the downsides here, but Sarah did describe some upsides, some of the techniques she's planning to use in a virtual classroom and what she hopes that parents, administrators and politicians know about teachers. You both may have read this or heard this, but it is true that for some students, remote learning brings out the best in them. And they are not the students who show up as being engaged or productive or generative in person. And a lot of us have really been teacher talk. You know, we've been wondering how can we hold on to the sudden sense of power that some of our students have discovered in remote that we didn't see the signs of in person. Mm -hmm. It's typically a more introverted student. It's typically a student who's a very deep thinker, but who's not glib and who doesn't have a vociferousness or a confidence maybe. Some of those students have really flourished in this setting, especially when they're given a lot of choice about how they respond to the literature. 
I had an assignment at the end of the year, for example, in Pride and Prejudice, that really gave students a range of options. They could respond using photographs that they annotated. Mm -hmm. They could Mm -hmm. respond by making a piece of art that they took a picture of and then annotated and shared with us. I also had a surprising amount of success with oral presentations over Zoom. Mm -hmm. I was really nervous about how is this going to work over Zoom? And it was actually fantastic because each person presented to the rest of the class over Zoom. And we had that kind of feeling of intimacy that we used to have back in the classroom. I would imagine that kids have a better sense of what they want to be looking at, you know, mm. than we do. And so I would imagine that they crafted their presentations with that in mind. Exactly. I'm learning a lot about how much better it is for students if they have more control. And there's something about the virtual space which gives more agency to some students that they can then take advantage of. Yeah. Yeah. Is there something that parents or administrators or politicians, people outside school, is there something that you think they don't know that you would want them to know right now? Some people probably don't know how hard most teachers really have taken all of this. I think that it may not occur to them that there's been a lot of grief and loss for us too, because the in-person work that we do is so vital. And I, I think some parents get it and some administrators certainly get it. I don't know about the politicians. <laughs> it's really important to understand that these are, I'm going to say it, I think they're sacred relationships mm. between teachers and their students. And even if a student doesn't like a teacher, the teacher has a responsibility to that student. And so I think the loss of our powers of access is profound for us. We are responding with ingenuity and We're responding by just recalibrating and rethinking and restructuring everything that we've always known. And that's great. And I think teachers are, by and large, a very determined group of people who will not sit down quickly, who will just keep trying. Mm -hmm. If teachers are saying things like, it doesn't feel like it's safe enough to go back to school as normal, they're saying that with a heavy heart. They're saying that resignedly, reluctantly, and out of a consideration. We know how kids are together. We know how close they like to be to each other. (laughs) We know that realistically, students in certain age groups are going to do things that are against their best interests. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I can't pass up this opportunity to ask you um, what you're reading now and maybe a few books that you'd like to recommend to folks. Sure. I would recommend... Well, can I tell you, so a really proud part of being a teacher is when your former students go on to become writers. So can I offer a shameless plug for my former students? Totally. Yes. Yes. I have assigned her second novel as the summer reading for my African-American course, which is called Still I Rise, which is a quotation from a Maya Angelou poem, which is about the way that Black women have had power and agency in activism historically. And the book is called The Revisioners, and it's by Margaret Wilkerson Sexton. And Margaret was my advisee and my student many years ago. Her first novel was A Kind of Freedom. Both books are fantastic. And Margaret was writing furiously, even when she was in ninth grade. That's how we met. She said, I have been writing and I need someone to read it, would you? And I became her advisor on the strength of loving her writing when she was 14. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So her work has been hugely enjoyable for me to see come out into the world. Is there anything that you think we should ask you that we haven't? I guess the question that I've always wanted to be asked is, how do you feel when you wake up in the morning and you're about to go teach? That's the question I've always wanted to answer. Okay. Well, how do you feel? (laughs) Even in COVID, even in the time of remote learning, if it's a day I wake up and it's a weekday and I know I'm going to be teaching that day, I am happy and I'm excited. And it's always a little bit of a mystery. Every single class, Mm -hmm. how are they going to respond to Frankenstein? What are they going to have to say about crime and punishment? What's going to trip them up? What's going to engage them? I mean, I just want to know the answers to those questions so much. And then when I read their work, what depths are they going to discover just because I asked them to write something and they did? And then when I read it, what am I going to discover about them that I didn't know before? I feel so fortunate that my days are full of mystery and wonder and that I never write about the answers. If I make predictions, I'm never right. It's always exceptional. Oh, I'm feeling so inspired. (laughs) Is everyone listening now longing to become an English teacher? I mean, if you hadn't already done it for six months and told me how just exhausting it is, I'd be knocking on doors. Well, it it is simultaneously exhausting and even better than you might imagine. I sat in the teacher's lounge and every day I was surrounded by people who were smarter than I am. It was so great from Mm. that perspective. I learned so much from my colleagues. But yeah, it is exhausting. The thing that drives me nuts is when people say, well, it's such a great job. You get summers off and all those vacations and blah. No, you, you don't actually. First of all, many, many teachers take jobs during the summer because their school year jobs don't pay enough for them to take summers off. I would get to work by 7.30 in the morning and several of my colleagues, including Sarah, were always there. I think they were there by 7. I never saw Sarah leave before 4. I don't know what time she left because I would usually leave by 4. You're a real slacker, Eve. I know. (laughs) They had to carry me. (laughs) Yeah, in so many ways they did have to carry me. But um, they work incredibly long hours. And then you go home and you have papers to grade. I hope more people appreciate what teachers do, especially now, and how hard this pandemic teaching really is on them as well as their students. And let's just have one big thank you now to all of the teachers out there who are who are working so hard yeah that's it i think for this episode of the book dreams podcast thanks so much for listening please subscribe if you haven't already and if you like the podcast and think someone else would too please rate and review us on apple podcasts or your favorite podcast player Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. Many thanks to our associate producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julian.